Hi there. Thanks for checking out the show. On today's program, we have Janice Irwin and Sarah Hoffman. Janice and Sarah are both MLAs for the NDP Caucus of Alberta. Sarah is a former Edmonton Public School trustee, as well as a Deputy Premier and Minister of Health, and is currently the lead education critic for the opposition. Janice is a former teacher, vice principal, university lecturer, and executive director of high school curriculum here in Alberta education. She specializes in uh, LGBTQ plus rights, as well as is a lead critic for the NDP in regards to women and LGBTQ issues. Before we get started, I just wanted to say a few words. Uh, this podcast is meant to reflect my views and my opinions alone, and I do in no way represent my union or education or anything like that. Uh, but that being said, I, I sat down with Janice and Sarah, and it happened to be at a very timely uh, moment in Alberta politics where the new curriculum was, re was released. Uh, we didn't really get into it, mostly because we, as a team, the three of us needed more information and needed more study in regards to what was in there and we wanted to be very sure as to what we were saying was accurate and reflective. That being said, this is a show that is not meant to be partisan and I'm not trying to pick sides. Uh, my politics do lean closer to NDP politics than the UCP, however, uh, my vote is always up for grabs and I think yours should be too. So with all that being said, I hope you enjoy Sarah Hoffman and Janice Irwin. My guest today is MLA's Janice Irwin and Sarah Hoffman. Today actually is a special day. We're recording this on the day of the curriculum, uh, the new curriculum being dropped. We won't talk too much about the curriculum or dropping because uh, we're still unpacking it as far as that goes, but we are going to be talking a lot about issues in education from an NDP perspective. So Janice, Sarah, thanks for coming. Happy to be here. So I wanted to have both of you on because you're both prominent figures in the in Alberta politics and you're representatives of us in legislature and issues in education have been coming up and this was supposed to be an open forum for both UCP or MLA whoever would say yes to me and the two of you happen to say yes so thank you for doing that uh but I kind of want to start it off with just who you two are so we know you as politicians but I also wanted to kind of back us up and and realize that you're both involved in education. So maybe Sarah, could you lead us off with just telling us a little bit about your teaching experience or uh, your involvement in education? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the question. I grew up in small town, Northern Alberta for most of my childhood. Uh, we spent some time in Castor, Alberta, but the majority of my childhood was in uh, Canuso. And we also lived in Ontario, actually. So many small towns in rural Alberta. And when I was finishing high school, it was around the same time. My parents were both teachers. My dad was my school principal. And um, we were feeling the impacts of the deep cuts of the 90s. And uh, not just to our school, obviously, a big impact on our school, um, but also on our individual household. Both my parents uh, were forced to take rollback, uh, quote, save young teachers jobs. And then of course, uh, they also lost their jobs and my parents both had those rollbacks. So my parents really discouraged me from pursuing a career in teaching, um, not because they didn't love it, but because they didn't feel respected by their government. 
so I took a few years. I studied uh, my first degree was in math and then religion, but then eventually I decided I really did want to train to become a teacher and then did a master. So I actually didn't uh, spend time in the classroom as a, as a full-on teacher because I went straight into my master's program, even though that wasn't the plan. Sometimes life gets in the way of good plans. And then that brought me eventually to the legislature. I worked as a researcher at the U of A and then also here at the legislature and um, later ran for the Edmonton Public School Board where I was the, a trustee and the board chair. And then in the lead up to the 2015 election, it was really clear that there were gonna be a lot of cuts to education. And Rachel Notley um, very kindly asked me if I wanted to be a part of implementing a terrible budget or if I wanted to instead run for office and try to create a really awesome one. And I was really proud to be elected with her uh, and many other NDP MLAs in 2015 and then reelected with Janice in 2019. So not a short answer, but that's because I'm 40 now. So uh, my, my history part is slightly longer than it used to be. <laughs> that's okay, because we have an unlimited time. Podcasts have no rules, which is the beauty of them. Uh, Janice, how about yourself? Yeah, uh, thanks. So um, similar to Sarah, I also grew up in rural Alberta. And so um, my uh, my K-12 education was in Barhead, Alberta, of all places. And uh, yeah, so grew up there, uh, headed to the big city for university. And uh, once I completed my B.Ed., um, you know, a lot of my a lot of my peers in my in my cohort, uh, were sticking around Edmonton and wanted to, you know, wanted to get on the Edmonton public or Catholic sub list and wanted to stay there. And uh, I saw a job in the uh, village of Balfe, Alberta, that was teaching high school social studies and English. And uh, I finished my I had finished my degree early in December, and this job was starting in January. And so I thought, you know what, I will get to teach exactly what I want to teach right away. I won't have to wait around. And took the job. Uh, lived in Camrose, taught in Balf, um, and uh, that was for about four so four and a half years. And then I took a position uh, in Forestburg, Alberta as a vice principal. Uh, I learned pretty quickly that I loved, you know, I loved being out there and uh, really great experiences that I wouldn't change for the world. But um, personally, I knew that uh, being in rural Alberta probably wasn't a good uh, long-term strategy for me. So I actually ended up taking a secondment working with Alberta Education, which was meant to be just a a three-year position uh, that I would take in Edmonton and then I would come back to my school board, Battle River. But, uh, you know, as Sarah said, plans don't always um, don't always work out and, and life throws some curveballs. And that, that uh, temporary position turned into a permanent one working with curriculum with Alberta Education. And uh, I ended up staying there working in curriculum for about um, seven years. And uh, and so, yes, today is very timely because it's uh, curriculum is something that's really close to my heart and something that I care care deeply about. Um, I'd also done graduate work in that area, uh, my master's as well as my Ph.D. coursework. Um, but I ended up not finishing my Ph.D. because that gets me into my political journey of uh, running for office. So I first ran for office in uh, in uh, 2015. And uh, that was uh, I launched that campaign in 2013 to two years early and uh, I was working full time for the government and I was teaching at the university and I was doing my PhD and then I decided to run for office and for some reason 
I just didn't have enough hours in the day to do it all. And so I, uh, I moved forward with everything, but I, I, well, I stepped away from my PhD and I hope that I can come back because I, uh, I care a lot about that. But yeah, I always had plans to, you know, or I thought really that I would come back to teaching and instead uh, entered the political realm, even though I was unsuccessful my first, uh, my first run federally, I stayed involved and uh, in uh, long story short, in 2019, I, I was successful. And so here we are and I get to work with Sarah and Rachel and an amazing team. What a journey. So as the listener can see, I am both academically and politically way over my head right now, uh, but that's okay. We'll, we'll have Sarah and Janice kind of carry me through here. I, I actually kind of want to make a comment, Janice, that I too, uh, so we're, we have something in common. We've both lived in Camrose. I grew up in Camrose, so uh, we may or may not have crossed paths back in the day, uh, but I also taught in a rural setting. So I think you can appreciate how special that is because the, the bond that you get to form with not only your school, but the community is so much deeper and so much more fulfilling. It's it's something that I recommend every teacher try. There's 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 a hesitation for our, our city-centered teachers to to maybe venture out there because of the commute or logistical issues, but it's 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 a super rewarding and super powerful experience. And it gets to see a different way of a way of being, which is awesome. So yeah, both of us educators, teachers, uh Sarah, uh, so we're both masters too. What did what, how did teaching or the philosophy behind teaching help the two of you venture into politics? Um, so my, um, my master's was in educational policy studies. So maybe cultural studies or sociology of education would be other titles that people might uh, apply to the area that I focused in. And it really, the, I, I didn't plan on doing my master's. When I was doing my um, education after degree, I was in a course that I did quite well in and my prof reached out to me and said, you know, you seem to have a, like, be really interested in this better. I'd be happy to support you in your application to do a master's. And that was the first time I'd really thought about getting a graduate degree. It, it hadn't been something that crossed my mind before that. And it gave me an opportunity when I was thinking about teaching, because that was still my plan, to really focus on understanding where kids come to the classroom from. What, what they bring with them, what their home life is, what the communities and the cultures that they live in, uh, how they shape them and how that impacts um, their opportunities in life. And I think that that is a lot of what drew me specifically towards the NDP and to politics in general is I feel so fortunate. Like really, when you look at the objective like um, challenges or, or equity areas that uh, that um, statistically I would have had a difficulty overcoming and in, in pursuing higher education. I grew up in a rural community. Not as many rural kids get university degrees as uh, kids who live in the city. And I, I was a woman, but those were my only barriers. My parents uh, were educated, had middle-class incomes. I'm white. I had so much privilege. And when I was in those education classes, sort of reflecting on who else was in those classes with me, um, it became very clear that we need to do so much more as a society to create opportunities for all kids to see themselves at the front of the classroom, for all kids to see themselves as a teacher with the ability to inspire and instill knowledge in others. And I think the work we do as government has the opportunity to either create greater opportunities for those equity-seeking groups to be able to achieve whatever it is that they aspire to, or we can make it worse and grow the income inequality gap and, and the education gap. And, and I really want to work towards closing those gaps and making it better. So I kind of want to jump in there, just kind of playing off. And this will this question will be towards Janice, because uh, you would have seen it. You would have lived it as well as I would have lived it in a rural setting. The technology gap in a rural school, a rural setting is huge. And I, I feel 
te the technological divide between a, a major urban center such as Edmonton and it was like for in my case I was in Riley. The internet barely worked. There was no cell service. Uh, your your prospects for employment were were not super vast. Like, can you speak a little bit to the role the government has in making sure that those kids and those teachers and everybody has an equitable chance at success? Yeah, and you know what? Uh, absolutely, and that's that's really cool that you were in Riley because, of course, I was I was coaching junior high basketball, and we always played against Riley, so I remember uh, Riley well. Uh, but you know what? I, I have to say, especially in Balf, uh well, Forsberg as well. Um, there, the access to technology was was a lot um, better than you'd think. Um, we actually were part of that. I don't know if you uh, if you were there at the time when um, they started the one to one laptop project. So. This was, I think, in about, uh, gosh, maybe 2007, 2008. So pretty mm -hmm. early. And and actually, all of my uh, high school students had access to laptops, and we had pretty decent internet. But I know that's not the case um, uh, everywhere. And we were very lucky to be able to have that that investment. And and Sarah's absolutely right. I mean, the the issues around equity and, um, you know, access were issues that motivated me as well. Um, you know, talking about Indigenous students as an example, talking about students who, you know, racialized students, students who, who experience greater barriers than than others. These are things that have always motivated me and particularly uh, motivate, motivated me in my, my graduate work in curriculum, right? Because as Sarah said, and of course, it's just so timely today, we know that students are more successful when they see themselves in curriculum and, um, you know, so how, how governments shape those documents um, really do have a significant impact. And more to come on this later as, as Sarah and I do a deeper dive, but, you know, we're already seeing that these, uh, these new curriculum documents uh, presented by the UCP government will not allow students to, to see themselves, Indigenous students, newcomer students, LGBTQ2S plus students, so the list goes on. And so, yeah, these are absolutely issues that are, that are motivating us uh, in our work uh, politically. So, Sarah, your role in the NDP right now is the lead education critic. Uh, I actually had Jason Schilling on, who is my boss's boss, I guess, our ATA representative, and we were just kind of discussing budget and pandemic and all of these things. And one of the words that we kind of agreed upon was disrespect. So from and that's that's from a governmental uh, perspective facing our union. Uh, teachers are burnt out and we're not being acknowledged for the incredible sacrifice the scary nature of working in a pandemic and the fact that we have pivoted from in-person to online to in-person to online to in, you get the point. Uh, what is kind of your message? What's the NDP message towards teachers right now? Yeah, the number one message is thank you. Um, the number two is that it doesn't need to be this way. We've been fighting so hard for uh, increased educational supports and this didn't just start uh, in the last few months, like in June, we actually put out a report with 15 recommendations on ways that we can make schools uh, safer to support students and staff during the pandemic. The fact that the government chose instead to uh, fast track their corporate giveaway for large corporations making in excess of $500,000 a year profit, the fact that they chose to double down on betting for Donald Trump with the Keystone XL pipeline, the fact that they continue to fund the energy war room, like all of these things are about choices and priorities. And, um, you know, we wanted to invest a billion dollars in making schools safer this year. And the government said we couldn't possibly do that. Yet they spent 1.3 on this, at least 1.3 on the, the bet that Donald Trump was gonna get reelected. So it is really about choices and priorities, but we are fighting to have reduced class sizes, to have more supply staff. I know the pressures that teachers feel around going to work when they're sick, uh, 
you know, the pandemic has really taught us the importance of not doing that in a really focused way. But I know how much work it is to get things ready for a substitute. And if you don't have a substitute available, how much scarier that is. And the number of schools that have told me that they haven't been able to find supply teachers this year is uh, really, really concerning. So there are a number of things that government can do to make life safer uh, for students and staff and in turn the families and the communities that everyone goes home to. Um, they've really, um, I think, uh, taken uh, everyone's commitment for granted and uh, put people in situations that I don't think are fair or respectful for the um, you know, the frontline workers, heroes that we uh, often refer to. I think you treat your heroes uh, often with more respect than we've seen this government treat teachers. Well, we appreciate that. Uh, so I guess in the, for the sake of fairness, I, I do, I just want to push back quickly, Sarah, and just be like, how would you have paid for that as an NDP government? What were your strategies to pay for it? Because the, I can hear the UCP audience say, yeah, but money. So just tell me a little bit about yeah. what the NDP plan would have been to finance that. Yeah, so those three areas that I highlighted, like the the money that was bet on Keystone was mm -hmm. way more than what it would actually cost to have put in our 15 recommendations. Um, right. The money that was given away to corporations, uh, it's worked out to 4.7 billion over four years and fast tracking, you know, their, their giving away of uh, rolling back corporate uh, taxes and not for small corporations, not for those that are struggling and can have, you know, this would make a real difference. It's only for those that are already making half a million in profits per year that got this big gift, this big giveaway. And when they say, well, that's going to create jobs like it didn't it didn't before the pandemic we were down 50,000 jobs and um and and most businesses hire the number of workers they need to do the job that needs to get done they don't think oh well i've got a little extra money i'll hire more people and cut into my profits that's not good financial literacy that's not good business management strategies so for the government to use these failed arguments from the 1990s that's how we'd pay for it. We'd have um, a, a budget that had appropriate revenue to address uh, the appropriate investments in keeping schools open. And it's good for the economy if schools can stay open safely because you won't have all of this yo-yo effect that impacts families when they need to call in and say, sorry, my kid needs to isolate for another two weeks. I need to be at home. Um, I'll try my best to do some work or no, I can't work at all because your work can't accommodate you working remotely. Like it doesn't just have an impact on the government's budget when schools close. It has an impact on the family budget as well. And it wasn't fully thought through as well because it makes the assumption that everybody has technology, that everybody has access to internet and resources. And that is not necessarily the case. And as somebody who lived it, uh, the idea that we were going to have synchronous lessons was not feasible because if you have two kids and one laptop, the math doesn't add up there. So I, it was just something that was super frustrating on our end. And it was, we, were, we weren't really given the support or the, the guidance as to how that goes. So I, I guess my next question would be kind of to do with curriculum design. So we were largely kept in the dark and, and, I'll, and I'll pivot over to Janice because she is a curriculum or expert as well. Uh, like if you were to design or the NDP curriculum we were, just, we were talking prior to was, was in the works and it was ready to be piloted in 2016, maybe to start with, some of the aspects that the NDP curriculum valued and speculate as to why it didn't come to be. Yeah, so I mean, it's a big question. Um, and, and you know, full disclosure, I I was there, of course, from, uh, you know, when, when the NDP launched the curriculum development in 2016. And, uh, but I did step away in 2018. So, um, there was a bit, there's a bit of a window there where I, um, I was not involved. Um, but, you know, uh, I can tell you, Cole, 
the process that I um, saw and oversaw it. I was the executive director of high school curriculum, so I got to work closely with the uh, on the high school piece. Um, so I wasn't as intimately connected to um, what we're seeing now from the UCP, the, the K to six, or what was the K to four uh, in the stages that we were using. Um, but um, I can tell you the process was robust. It was evidence based. We had. Um, uh, you know, the, the decisions that we were making, um, the drafts that we were creating were based on research, were based on best practices, were based on jurisdictional scans from all over the world. Um, so, you know, we felt very confident in, in our approach. Um, we consulted with tens of thousands of Albertans. Um, so the UCP will push back and say that there wasn't, um, you know, that this process was done in secret. That is absolutely not true. Truly, tens of thousands of Albertans, teachers, students, parents, regular Albertans who might not fit any of those uh, categories, um, I saw it firsthand. So we know that that work was um, was 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 very um, uh, well planned. Um, uh, you know, we're as as far as the content pieces, why some of that didn't move forward. I mean, the the plan was, um, of course, prior to the, the election in in 2019, the plan was, of course, to be moving forward with um, with uh, field testing and then with implementation. And so those documents were ready to go when um, Adriana Lagrange held a press conference in August of 2019 uh, at a school in my riding, in fact. Um, that was the first question we asked. We said, like, we had documents that were ready to go to be field testing. And her announcement was that they were going to be starting fresh with new uh, advisors with no teachers involved. And so you can imagine just uh, for so many reasons why we were critical of that process. We'd already invested thousands of hours, millions of dollars in a um, sound uh, approach to curriculum development. And now the UCP came in, they got elected and they committed to shredding that. So um, I can't speculate as to why all, all of the, you know, the various aspects. And as I've said, Sarah and I are, are in the process of doing a deep dive into what is and isn't there. Um, you know, we, Sarah talked about today in her, uh, in her press conference that, you know, there, we're proud of the fact that there are things that the uh, UCP retained in our curriculum documents because we pushed for them. Those are things like financial literacy, consent education, uh, coding and computer science, uh, just to name a few. Those are things that kicked off under the NDP government's leadership. It's good to celebrate too that it's not all bad and I'm not going to be doom and gloom. I have no idea. We we kind of celebrate or we decided as a team that we weren't going to talk about this because, well, the two of you are much more informed and I was like, oh crap, I forgot that was coming out. And I was like furiously mm -hmm. reading it for 10 minutes and I was like, I, I can't talk about this. I'm not qualified. So <laughs> that's, if you're, if you're clamoring for curriculum talk, I apologize. You'll have to come back a different day. Uh, but we can talk about, we can talk about funding. Oh, go ahead, Sarah. I was just going to say, if you tonight, tomorrow, a month from now, have feedback you want to give or any of your listeners, I want to encourage them to reach out to us either on social or our email addresses pretty uh, broadly posted on the internet because we'd love your feedback. Uh, and yeah, people will have more time in the days and weeks to come and we want to we want to hear your thoughts on it. Awesome. So I, we're not, or I'm not qualified to talk about curriculum right now. Not only am I not a K-6 educator, but I just, I'm not informed. But I can talk a little bit about or get your opinion on the budget for teaching. So the budgeting for teaching has switched. The funding model has gone from or towards a rolling and or a weighted rolling and rolling average. And to be honest, I'm confused, but it 
but the math tells me that it's a cut. So maybe explain to me why it's a cut and what is it, Sarah? Is this is this confusing on purpose or like like why is this not a sound way to fund education? It's absolutely intended to be confusing on purpose. So when I was a school board member and so was the current education minister, we advocated for adequate, sustainable, predictable funding. The minister will often talk about the last two words, sustainable and predictable, but she won't talk about adequate. And the the thing is that telling people this is how much money you're going to have next year, but it not being enough, that isn't good. That isn't good governance. That isn't that isn't good governance, that isn't good decision making. So what they've done is they've decided that instead of, we used to have to submit our, our headcount head count on September 30th. So how many kids were registered in your school at the end of September? And that was the money that would flow to ensure that there were enough supports for every kid in your school to help them throughout that year. Instead, the government's decided to play this bit of a shell game and they're gonna give you some money based on how many kids you think you're gonna have in September how some money based on how many you had last year and some money based on how many you had the year before. So um, it is absolutely based on projections, not on realities. Schools that are going to see big en enrollment increases, and that is happening in communities, uh, the growing communities, Edmonton, Calgary, Camrose, uh, other growing areas of our province, won't be funded for how many kids they actually have in the classroom. They're funded based on how many they used to have and how many maybe they think they might have in the upcoming year. So it's not based on the real needs of our, our everyday classrooms. And the government's done this on purpose to, uh, to come up with top talking points and el completely eliminate that adequacy piece. We need to have adequate funding to meet kids' needs today. So I guess maybe I'll flip it over to Janice with a kind of a follow-up question. And why are we cutting education at all? It seems to me like now is more than ever the most important time to fund the crap out of education because education is our future, which is by extension Alberta's future. Don't we want to succeed in the future? Help me understand that. And maybe the third and fourth order consequences of not having a, fun, a properly funded education system. Yeah, and I mean, Sarah can can definitely speak to this more, but uh, I mean, it's it's a great question, Cole. Um, at a time when you know we're in the midst of a pandemic, we should be um, we should be very much uh, sort of analyzing our our priorities. You know, what looking at what what sort of what sort of future do we want to create for um, the upcoming generations? And and we've seen this honestly with so many, um, in so many examples with this government where they've made these short-sighted decisions. Failure to invest now in education, in healthcare, in childcare, in harm reduction, the list goes on. Making these cuts now and failure to invest now are going to cost this government so much more in the long run. And this is a government that talks a big game about being fiscally conservative and about being fiscally responsible. And they've shown Time and time again with their decisions, they're absolutely not. Because again, this is going to cost us all a whole lot more in the long run. Sarah, do you have a follow-up or a thought on that? Uh, Janice is absolutely right. This, it, you know, instead of just thinking in you know six-month cycles of what's the what's the headline going to be, we need to be thinking about the future economic diversification. Uh, we need a well-educated um, society to be able to support uh, adequate economic diversification. And those who have ideas on that, we've launched a website, albertasfuture.ca, where we're welcoming people of every political persuasion to come and give us advice on, uh, we have a number of different policy papers posted there, and we want feedback on where you want to see Alberta headed, because um, this is about all of us. Investing in kids, 
obviously is good for those kids who are in school right now, but it's also good for our society. And like, it doesn't have to be partisan. And one of the things that I kind of wonder about, and maybe I'll get your opinions, both of you, is does education have to be partisan? Or is there some way that we could almost have like a Supreme Court that is like separate from our political, whoever's in political control? We might edit this out if this goes nowhere, but this is kind of a shot. Does anybody have a thought on that? So I think education's political. I think that okay. uh, the fact that we want to support kids in 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 their development is a is a political. Correct. I should say curriculum. I should say curriculum. Curriculum development. Yeah. Should it be outside of the? It well, should, should it be honestly, outside of party affiliation. Honestly, like I, it's so tricky for me because val values that you have are what drives uh, who you right. are and instilling uh, knowledge for the society. But Janice, you're the curriculum expert. Take it away. Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely this. The Sarah, you're right. Um, education, curriculum work, they are political in nature. Teaching is a political act. It absolutely is. Is it partisan? No. And I mean, you know that that would be the the criticism. You know, the, again, the UCP will be very will be very critical, and they have been of our curriculum development because they said it was ideological. Well, what did they point to? They pointed to things like reconciliation and climate change. That's not ideological. Those are issues that our students need to be understanding at early grades, right? And so, um, you know, I think it, I think part of Cole, maybe what you're getting at is right now we are very much in a in a um, polarized political environment. Absolutely, we've got two two political parties that are represented in the legislature, and we've got a lot of Albertans who are very frustrated with the sitting government, and that's the UCP. Um, so no, I mean it's it's not uh, curriculum's not partisan, but it's absolutely political. And Sarah and myself and 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 our party, the NDP, we hold uh, you know we 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 hold a number of values that absolutely we want to see in in curriculum. But those are values like social justice. Those are values like reconciliation. Those are values like having an understanding of of um, of, of climate change and um, building. Uh, effective, engaged citizens, good people, right? These are things that we care about. And of course, we're going to fight for them in curriculum documents. Yeah, that's fantastic. It was more, that was just me more throwing something at the wall and seeing if it would stick or not. It's just something I've kind of been bantering about. But yeah, like I said, I, I appreciate your, your feedback on that. So how, my experience with the curriculum is that it's very good at, at preparing my students for 1975. How can we prepare students for 2025? Because the rise of automation and AI, I think, has caused some of this income inequality and this job insecurity, as well as some corporate tax uh, funny funny business that I, I'm not qualified to speak of, but that's just things that I'm, I'm pretty sure are happening. So how what are some skills that we as teachers need to be implementing on our students going forward? 1975 might be a little ambitious. Part of the curriculum documents today highlighted teaching cultural dances like the jive and the jitterbug. So mm. um, rather than exploring like art is, uh, this is the arts curriculum, it is so dynamic and it is evolving every day. And the stuff that kids are creating right now, like kids are creating amazing content and they're using technology to do that and, and be artistic at the same time. So I think expanding things like programming is a good thing. Helping kids understand the relationship between coding and the world. I think these are skill sets that uh, I wish I had uh, today. And, and I know that some of the little people in my life who are acquiring them are really proud of their ability to uh, grow in that area. But uh, I think most of it isn't about um, obsessing about specific dates that wars 
happened or, or, you know, rulers ruled parts of Europe. I think this is about understanding our relationship to each other, our relationship to the world, a little bit about the, the history, obviously, of those things. I think it's important for kids to understand the atrocities of the, of the world wars and what we're doing as a society to try to ensure that we don't recreate those same negative histories. But telling kids in grade two to memorize things about Socrates, um, or is it Plato? I can't remember. Like, Aristotle. not necessarily. Oh, Aristotle, <laughs> not necessarily core foundation to being a successful global citizen in, mm-hmm. in, in my take, but, um, but we're going to go through this in greater detail and, and have more, more feedback on this. But I think the big thing is talking to kids about uh, what happened and why it happened rather than telling them to memorize when and who. Sarah's right, and this is the the analysis we're doing now. I mean, um, it's quite clear that these documents are not developmentally appropriate. Um, you know that they very much rely on antiquated um, teaching and uh, teaching methods of rote memorization of long, lengthy lists of um, facts uh, and figures instead of deep understanding, meaningful learning, which we know the research. Uh, is clear and how important uh, that is. And that, and that was the approach we were taking in, in our curriculum development. And uh, as you'll see, you'll, um, you know, there's many education experts out there uh, who are um, who are going to be joining us in their in their criticism of this of this approach because it's it's not effective. And uh, and we've seen that. So no. And I mean, the cool thing is, I mean, Cole, you know, teachers have been working. Uh, you know, I worked with old curriculum documents. We always point to uh, the junior high arts curriculum, which is uh, uh, as old as I am, 1984. So, you know, teachers are working with these curriculums right now across the province and they're doing amazing things. Teachers will continue to do amazing things, but this government had a, an opportunity to truly um, support students and teachers and they chose not to. They chose to elevate the voices of, of academics and experts who have no background in K-12 education, who have no background in understanding how uh, students learn. And that's, that's, that's quite troubling. And uh, that's why we're going to keep speaking out about it. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, and myself as a teacher and looking at our curriculum and how you mentioned rote memorization, that's that's old, that's outdated. I'm holding an iPhone in my hand right now with a cute picture of my dog. Uh, and I can look all that stuff up online. It's all there. What I can't look up online is how to think, how to process, how to critically examine sources, how to try and put myself in somebody else's shoes. That needs to be explicit. And sorry, grade two? can understand Socrates. It's, it is a neural developmental issue. Your brain is, there's not enough of it online yet. And that's not to be mean. It just means your frontal lobe doesn't finish growing till 25. You don't have the, the hardware, the, you don't have the computing software for it. So let's, let's ground it in science, which is what I like to hear. And unfortunately we as teachers, and I looked at my Twitter, which is kind of a, a curated feed. So I'm sensitive to that, but it is a bit of a dumpster fire today. So whatever. Uh, so Myself and several other teachers, but I'll just speak for myself, are frustrated with that disrespect that we feel sometimes from our our government. So what can we as teachers do? How can we make our voices heard? Sarah? Sure. Um, Number one, like, don't be silenced. Uh, If you are upset about something, make sure you tell people in positions of power. I would love for you to make sure that you include me on that correspondence. So if you're going to write the premier, if you're going to write the education minister, CC me as the education critic. If you want to talk about uh, gender uh, and sexual orientation and women's issues, CC Janice, or in general, feel free to CC us. Like we, uh, we uh, get a lot of email, but that's okay, because it helps 
us hold the government to account when um, when we are asking these questions and when we can do it also on, on behalf of Albertans who've reached out to us. So I'd say, yeah, don't let them tell you that your voice doesn't matter. It does. Um, that uh, if you're going to write, if you're going to call, call in the office and leaving a message. I didn't check my own voicemail when I was a minister of health, but I walked by the desk of the person who did and I could tell if she had something on her mind and I would check in with her when I'd walk by her desk and we would I'd be able to hear what some of the main feedback was that we were getting. So, um, you know, phoning, emailing, engage in social media. Like, honestly, this is where a lot of us find solidarity, but we also uh, can create opportunities for positive change. And, and you know, part of what pressured uh, Jason Kenney to respond to Aloha Gate was all of the public pressure and all of the chatter that was happening in communities, right? Like, if everyone would have just been quiet, the, like he wouldn't have done anything just like he didn't on New Year's Day when he told us all about it. He would have let it go on and on and on. But because people were pushing back, they were being vocal because there were visible demonstrations, um, he couldn't keep ignoring it and he had to act. So we've been able to see consequences, uh, have positive outcomes when people engage also with parks, right? Like we've been able to push on parks and on coal and there's so much more to do, but uh, you know, governments that are, are hearing from their constituents uh, are more likely to respond to what their constituents have to say than if they're just being silent and feeling like it's a fait complete. It's not a fait complete. We can fight back. I guess I want to say two things too on that one is absolutely. And thank you for being politically engaged, but to do it in a respectful way, like we don't have to be so mean online. Like I see it on both sides. No one's innocent here. Like the rhetoric online needs to be respectful and productive. And I will vouch for Janice and Sarah that they actually answer their social media when approached respectfully because they did it for me. <laughs> so last question, I will go out to both of you and maybe we'll go, I'll direct it at Janice first, but the both of you are going to answer. Uh, it seemed like there is this kind of separatism of like if you're criticizing the UCP, some Albertans feel that you're you're critic you're critical of Alberta, and I, I don't see that as the case. So maybe just we're, we're going to end on why you're proud to be an Albertan and what it and why you're you're so proud to serve Albertans in government. Yeah, no, great question. Um, I love it. Uh, you know, I I talk a lot about my rural roots in the legislature all the time. You know, I. I, I've spent more of my life in rural Alberta than I have in the city, and I represent one of the most urban ridings in Edmonton. So I, you know, when when the UCP get up and they they talk about uh, uh, they talk about how we're we're so out of touch and whatnot, you know, I I just love to share my stories and and try to amplify voices of folks who um, may not be heard in the legislature. And you're absolutely right, Cole. We are just so privileged. You know, I always say sometimes, uh, it, you know, you want to complain, you're working long hours or, you know, you're getting uh, getting a lot of, um, you know, rude people on social media, whatever the issue of the day might be. Um, I won't complain about it because I recognize that I truly am in a position of, um, uh, of privilege and um you know whatever i'm dealing with i think you know if i'm working a late night i think that is absolutely nothing compared to what a healthcare worker is dealing with right now in the midst of a pandemic and so um i don't take this job um lightly i don't uh i don't ever ever um uh you know i, I always try i'll frame it more positively i always always try to um acknowledge my privilege and think about how you know how am i today um, amplifying the voices of someone who hasn't been heard. How am I today connecting with folks 
who um, feel like they're they're not being represented. Um, how am I trying to be the best representative that I can be? So absolutely, um, we're just we're so privileged in the roles that we have, and I'm just really proud to be part of a team that uh, aligns with my values, and that's that's the NDP. And I'll just add that Alberta is so much more diverse than an, uh, than the way we remember it being from a generation ago. Um, the fact that uh, we have a leader in Rachel Notley who said, I, she said, I will only lead a party if you commit to making sure we have 50% women on the ballot or more, because we'd never done that before, really, in Alberta, that there was never a commitment to actively seek out the voices of those who were underrepresented in our society. Women is one category. There's so much more, more um, equity-seeking groups, so many more equity-seeking groups that we need to fight for and make sure that they are at the table making decisions with us. But um, I think Alberta, I'm proud to be Albertan. I know uh, I've lived here essentially my whole life. I spent a couple summers in Toronto, um, but this has been home to me, whether it was uh, rural or urban. And I think for a lot of us, that has been the case. So when uh, when my conservative colleagues stand up in the house and try to teach us about who is Albertan and who isn't, um, you know, uh, uh, it just comes from such a place of arrogance. And, and, um, and I think that it's really disrespectful to everyone who calls this place home. And we have a lot of work to do to make sure that everyone feels safe um, especially when I think about uh, hijab-wearing Muslim women who've been uh, targets of attack uh, in um, in Alberta, like that is not the kind of place that um, we want this to be moving forward. And I know it's a very small minority that 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 um, are engaging in that kind of hate, but I know Albertans are loving, they're accepting, they're welcoming, and I know that we can work together to make sure that that kind of hate has no place uh, when we move forward. Um, that's one of the things I love about our province, that we we step up and we help each other when we're in times of crisis. Sarah, Janice, thank you so much for sharing your time and your insights with us and all the best going forward.